0: everyone it's nick walters again on our webinar wednesday that we are having sponsored by the national hemp growers cooperative and our podcast the industrial hemp growers digest welcome again to w- one of our wednesday live sessions and we have uh not shirked our responsibility in getting great guests yet again we have done a great job of being able to have uh, a, a terrific guest with us today when i say that there's a a big dog on with us today from uh within the hemp industry this is like if a great dane and a saint bernard you know had a super puppy on steroids it's bob hoban and so bob thank you so much for being with us and making some time today huh no
1: it's good to be here thank you and uh you know look there's there's a there's a million different things going on in
0: our industry so i'm excited to be here to talk about uh at least at least half of those things (laughs) that's terrific So, Bob, I'm going to, for anybody who might have been under a rock and not paying any attention exactly to who you are and what all you do, it's a lot easier, I find, about how can a guy who used to be a a Secret Service agent, turned lawyer, turned uh, um, cannabis lawyer, uh, move around in the space that you do. So give us a little quick, uh, Bob, background, as well as whenever your when was your hemp aha moment? We're interested to know that as well, too the himpahama the well yeah so i mean look I, I i grew up in new jersey
1: i graduated from Rutgers university did indeed work for the government uh decided I, I wanted to move to the western u.s uh fell in love with montana and wyoming uh transferred out here ended up going to law school and now i live about 30 miles west of denver i'm sitting in denver colorado in our office today and um, you know the i started my career as a uh, transactional lawyer and a commercial litigator Um, My mother, incidentally, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2005, and uh, I began to look for different ways to help her because those opiates just take a toll on your body and make Mm -hmm. uh, what they were told at that point in time. Her last six months made it miserable. She lived for three years. Um, and a lot of that with with the help of, of, of a variety of, of hemp and cannabis products. So um, that's sort of what made me shift over and go full time into this space. Um, I started my firm, Hoban and Fiola, which became the Hoban Law Group in 2008. And uh, on July 1st of this year, uh, I merged my firm into a top 100 firm called Clark Hill. Uh, we have almost 700 lawyers. And um, I lead its global cannabis industry group, which includes hemp and marijuana. When I talk about cannabis, to me, that's the plant. It's got two distinct sides of the industry, hemp and marijuana. And of course, we're here to talk about my favorite side, the hemp side, my my hemp aha moment. Um, My very good friend, Chris Peruzzi, worked for a company called Nordic Naturals uh, in the natural products space. Um, a company out of San Diego at the time called Canavest, which was tied up with a company called Hemp Meds and uh, another couple of companies, uh, they started to make something called CBD. And he says, Bob, they'd like to have a legal opinion about CBD from industrial hemp. And I said, "CBD? what? Uh, now we know we know a lot about that CBD, maybe too much. But uh, at that point in time, uh, the idea was, where is it from? how is it derived how is it processed and so that began to open my eyes to uh what we can do from a medicinal or a wellness standpoint from the plant Always been a big fan of of Jack Harris' book, uh, Emperor Wears No Clothes, and understanding uh, the historical uses. And Nick, you know this probably as well as anybody, but in the 1930s, Popular Mechanics Magazine was touting industrial hemp as the next billion-dollar crop. They're talking about crops in the 30s with a B, billions of dollars. And here we are many, many years later, seeing that at least begin to come to fruition. And that's what gets me excited.
0: That's cool. It's a great time to be a part of it. And even people like me that are late to the party are just glad that we got to the party. Uh, and we're glad to uh, glad to be here and glad to be about all that good stuff. So l- talk about a little bit, because um, uh, maybe not just so much about uh, wearing your lawyer hat, but being involved in the industry. hat. I know you've done a great deal of work in South America or in Latin America, I should just say, as, as a whole. Uh, as it relates to helping them write their own uh, hemp laws, right about what they yeah, what they do yeah. themselves. Well, but well that's, that's one of the more
1: spin. yeah. But one of the more exciting things that that uh, I've been able to do, or at least been able to leverage my experience, my position to do, is travel the world. I mean, I've I've been to better part of twenty countries a year for the last six or seven years. Um, I've written legislation and or regulations for about 35 countries uh, with direct engagement with those governments. And then I tend to bring my clients in. Um, That all started, incidentally, with an interesting story. I taught at the University of Denver from 2012 to about 2016. Um, I started to teach government regulations and began to see that uh, at least in Colorado, they're creating brand new regulatory framework around marijuana at the time, which later became hemp regulations. And I started to teach that to students. I took uh, 14 students to Montevideo, Uruguay, when I was working for the government down there, because of Uruguay, most people don't know, was the first country in the world to outright legalize cannabis, just the entire plant. For all purposes. Really. In Uruguay, most people don't even know it's in South America, Uh, but it's a small country with about four million people, plus or minus. And I got that opportunity through the University of Denver, and that's kind of how things steamrolled. Um, So I've worked with countries. The debate uh, to this day continues to be the illegalized cannabis, the plant. And then regulate its uses, you legalize what they often recall, refer to as psychoactive or non-psychoactive cannabis, sort of our hemp and marijuana distinction, mm-hmm. but in a very different way. Is it for domestic use? Is it for export only? Is it for medicine? Is it something to be sold over the counter? These are the policy issues all the time. And one of the things that, that you probably appreciate having your background is where do you rest the governmental responsibility for oversight of these things? The government say, well, we're going to legalize it. But then well, where do you put it? Well, Their inclination oftentimes is, well, put it in the Department of Defense or, or something like that. Well, because it's a plant, we need to be very protective of this psychoactive plant, or at least the compounds. Well, what about the Department of Ag? Or the Ministry of Agriculture, the Ministry of Health? All these agencies work together. So, so that's been a, a real pleasure trying to work through those issues over the years. Uh, across Latin America, worked in nine different African nations, uh, worked in Europe, all over Europe. Uh, the oldest hemp institute in the world is in Poznań, Poland, in a building on a university there uh, that we found uh, sort of by accident and and became some of the, 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 the most wonderful people that we've ever worked with in the hemp space. So, you know, those are some of the things that that have been extraordinarily interesting. But a lot of people also don't know. My clients are financiers oftentimes, and so I've stepped into a CEO role on an interim basis about a half a dozen times, four of those times, three three of those times for hemp companies where I've sort of worked as the interim CEO uh, for a global hemp company, and uh, I saw it from that perspective too. So the experience is wide-ranging, but uh, the possibilities are endless. We just got to get some momentum here in the United States because everybody looks to us for leadership and guidance, even though they've been doing this since we prohibited the plant in other places around the world. Uh, And now we've got to catch up.
0: Well, Well, that's a that's a great segue question. I mean, I think the issues around CBD and the FDA, we'd spend a whole rest of the afternoon talking about that. Okay, so let's kind of just set that aside for a minute if you can. Let's talk more about what you see from the industrial uses, meaning the food and the and the fiber side or the grain and fiber side as part of that. What do you, what are, I mean, what you've seen of where it has come from and where it is headed to, uh, uh, I'd be interested to know your parts about that. And what do you think are the bigger stumbling blocks that, that are really keeping that part of the industry <laughs> from watching? Well, well, let's start on the food side, right? A lot of people don't know
1: that there's, there's an index that's global that talks about protein deficiencies on a country-by-country basis. And as we know, hemp is a superfood in terms of protein. Of course, it has other uh, great nutritional benefits, omega-3s and 6s Um, in a variety of other ways that it's helpful to human beings and other mammals and other, other animals. But at the same time, it's that protein content that I think is going to drive the development and use of this plant coupled with the fact that it doesn't take that much water to grow a grain crop compared to other grain crops when you're growing it from hemp. And that's something that's been known around the world, but it's also something that has been maligned slightly because of the stigma that the cannabis plant as a whole attaches to it. But when I look at novel ways to 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 move that into the pipeline, you look at countries that have these protein deficiencies and they're looking at plant based proteins more and more and more. It's not just a fad we see in the United States. It's something that's realistic and necessary in countries around the world. So especially countries that have, you know, experienced that whether you call it climate trains or drought, drought conditions or whatever it is, there's just not as much water as there used to be for farmers uh, in most places around the world. So hemp presents a great opportunity. Opportunity and it solves that nutrition deficiency, that protein deficiency. But here's an exciting way that I see it being used. In a place where I've worked, uh, we, we wrote the law and worked with great folks on the le- ground in, in the country of Ecuador. I mean, Ecuador has a 1% threshold on their THC content to determine what's psychoactive and what's not, hemp versus marijuana. They are one of the largest shrimp producing countries in the world. There's shrimp farms. I didn't know that Shrimp farms were such a thing and they need protein for these shrimp. And so the idea is you've got these large shrimp farmers that are otherwise buying protein and protein additives from other sources. And now they're using the cakes and the meal from, you know, uh, uh, hemp crops to put protein into that supply chain. More and more, we're starting to see those types of uses. Fish farms, shrimp farms, um, things uh, analogous to that. That's where I think you're going to start to see the push outside of the United States. Whereas in the United States, you know, the question becomes you see great companies like Victory Foods. You still see the Canadians looking at having a a, a pretty strong handle on hemp for grain purposes and for protein purposes. Um, But, you know, that has to balance out a little bit. It's still cost prohibitive. If I want to go to a store, it's easier for me to get a smoothie with chia seeds for protein or a a protein powder additive than to say, I'll take the hemp protein because the price point per unit is still a little bit too high. So we're getting there in the United States and and we're, we're coming around to that production, to your point, then shift it over to the fiber side. What's going to drive the fiber development? You know, it's been said that 2021 sort of the year of fiber development in the United States. Certainly from a a genetic standpoint, we're seeing farmers move away from single purpose CBD crops or single purpose feminized crops, which never really made any sense, at least for a very short period of time. It made sense. But beyond that, uh, you know, it's like it's like if you're in a casino and you see somebody pull the slot machine and they win, everybody goes, oh, you pull the slot machine every time you win. That's what people thought about CBD, and they realize now that that's not the case. Uh, And it wasn't fair to farmers. So you got to stop promoting the myth that farmers can get rich growing cannabinoids. Uh, They need to grow something that's broad based. Fiber is the answer in large part to that. So how can we get fiber into the automobile manufacturers hands, knowing that fiber is built into their specifications for door paneling and other parts? Um, across the board, almost globally. That's the case with Volkswagen and BMW and a lot of North American brands. So how do you get um, the hemp products, the fiber into the hands of those manufacturers in northern mexico that are making these parts in a format where they can use the existing equipment they have i think that's the logjam, nick i think that's the log jam because that fiber from the hemp crop is so strong and so tough that it tends to eat up existing machinery and people don't want to retool completely so it's how do we how do we get fiber into the hands in a format fiber and other just biomass from the herd into the hands of these manufacturers so they can use it right now. That's what people are working on every day. I know that you've got a keen interest in that. Many of my clients do as well. But um, that is, I think, the key to unlocking all of this, is getting it in a format that
0: they can use with existing machinery. And it's not as easy as it sounds. Right, 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 right. Well, you know, I've heard some people talk about, well, a decortication e- equipment in um and uh, uh, places like nepal or a bunch of ladies sitting there pulling it off with their teeth you know <laughs> I mean, so, right. it's right. it's 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 not like we can't it, it doesn't get done okay but there's certainly got to be a better way to do it and we're not going to want to do it like china which is let's don't do automation let's give our people something to do right i mean we're going to have to figure out uh, uh that best way to do it and i know there are great groups and companies and people that are, are in that every day right that are, are making that but it I'm with you. It really kind of seems like the the, the logjam is the uh, production equipment availability and then making sure that even though they know a whole lot about how to do it. And I'm just thinking about like our our friend, you know, Corbett Heffner right down the road from you and people like that. They're out there mucking with it every day. Right. Trying to be able to tweak it. But there's not enough of them to be able to meet what it, what the demand would be. And so, and then you throw into part of that, things like we're doing in uh, here in our neck of the woods, even though as you might recall, we're a national cooperative, but, but, but in the Southeast, is kind of where we've started just because that's where we are. And we don't even know well enough what, what fiber uh, varieties are going to grow down here. And we don't, well, there's not been enough information about that. So we, we continue, are doing seed trials. We're getting, um, Doing some layups for the springtime. we have probably gonna have four or five different seed trials going on in nine different states. So we're all about excited about getting that rolled out. But we're well, well, um, let me let me just hit, a combination of this good stuff. It's good and bad. Well, let me let me hit a couple of those things because it's just
1: interesting when I think about another way to think about the textile uses of the fiber. Right? You think about in Latin America, a place as you mentioned. You know, I've been and, and worked so deeply in. There's blue jean manufacturers. There's clothing manufacturers generally, but blue jeans in particular are good products to use hemp fiber because of the the strength and and just the the nature of blue jeans and the feel versus uh, another cloth that needs to be softer. Right. And you talk to these blue jean manufacturers in in South America and they produce it for the entire region. And blue jeans are extremely popular for a variety of reasons. Mm. What? You can use hemp and then you can grow hemp. But then to your point, the further south you go in the United States or perhaps the further away you get from the equator, the fiber plants do better. And then the more tropical, the fiber plants don't do as well. So how do you look at those genetics? I mean, I look at, you know, uh, this uh, Lebreski, which is a, a Polish variety of industrial hemp, which is, you know, in many circles regarded as a leading hemp Fiber variety. I don't know enough about the different fiber varieties to compare it to others, but I know that it doesn't perform well when you start to go below Montana. And into Northern Colorado because you're starting to move it where that sun exposure mm-hmm. and that climate is going to affect it very, very differently. Right. So to your right. point, you know, does a, a a crop that grows in the South where it's a little bit warmer and I wouldn't call it tropical environment, but certainly not what you get up in Montana. Um, you know, when you throw all of elevation and everything into it as well, can you use the fiber from short, stubby plants uh, to produce these types of things? Uh, or can you grow these long, slender 20 foot plant plants in the south on a consistent basis um, with certified genetics? Because that's what they want. Who's going to plant, a uh, you know, 100 acres or more of something that you don't have guaranteed certified genetics on? That's part of the problem, too. It's like a chicken or the egg. So we're getting there. And then to your point, who's
0: going to decorticate it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, how is that all going to it's it's uh, um It makes it frustrating and fun all at the same time. Uh, And so that's, uh, I'm I'm with you on part of that. And hey, look, um, uh, any of our folks who are here that if you wanna be able to put something in the chat room, go on and and shoot a question this way, we'll be glad to do that and, and answer a question. I feel quite certain our friend Michael will ask a question. Yes. Thank you, Michael. I'd be so hurt if you didn't ask us a question. So, Bob, can you see that or do you need me to? I, uh, I sure can. I sure can. Um, so, so the question
1: is about uh, utilizing cotton gins, former cotton gins, uh, for purposes of, of fiber and, and processing for the hemp plant. Um, look, I, I've done the tour of the southeast. I've been in South Carolina, North Carolina, uh, where there's so many of these spinning facilities. Uh, And so many of these and and they're vacant. They haven't been used since NAFTA. Uh, You know, that's just a fact. And can you retool those those machines? Uh, You know, that presents the the biggest question. But it comes back to the genetics issue. Right. Is am I going to grow in the northern U.S., Minnesota, North Dakota, um, uh, Wisconsin, Montana? Am I going to grow tall hemp crops that I know can produce high quality fiber and then ship all that material to cotton gins, presumably mostly in the South or the Southeast or the Midwest into the Southeast, uh, that cost of transportation, given the pricing of those things, becomes cost prohibitive. So I don't know enough about the infrastructure in your typical cotton gin to say whether it can be retooled, but that cost of transportation piece keeps sticking in my head. So unless you can provide a consistent crop that grows in the regions closest to the cotton gins and those facilities can be retooled in a way that makes economic sense, then I don't know. Certainly the labor's there. And the history is there and the experience is there, but, you know, it comes down to
0: the transportation, genetics, and what does it cost to retool? Yeah, and, you know, that's that goes back again to the point about the genetics and about what's going to grow. And so until we know those things exactly, and it's not just decorticating once, it's decorticating and then cottonizing, right, particularly if it's going into the textiles. And so... All of those things are things that we do every day at the co-op. It's a great little, leg, that's a great segue commercial right there. Thank you, Michael, because I mean, that's part of what we're we're doing every day is trying to figure this out so that our growers don't have to figure this out. And we can come to them and say it's X, Y, Z variety. People are going to pay Q dollars or whatever, a pound for it. We're ready to go and we're processing it or others. We've actually looked at a, at a former cotton gin. Uh at, at going through the decortication process and, and adding that equipment to the gin. And there are some pieces of that equipment that will work, but there's a whole lot of things that are in a cotton gin specifically that won't that we don't need, particularly balers and other stuff like that, too. So that's another good kind of cool question. Hey Bob, but before we cut you loose, talk a little bit about ESG. One of the things that you didn't brag on yourself on that I'll be glad to do is that you were a uh, ongoing contributor to uh, Forbes magazine, and you write a good bit about that. You did a great article back in the spring on ESG for anybody that's just now kind of catching up to the ESG world. Uh, and you s- did that around the uses of cannabis hemp, hemp, particularly about how we can help companies become more E, at least, right, in, uh, uh, in their ESG piece about how that's a part of that. Speak to that just a little bit about what you see. Um, yeah, well, you know, look, more and more
1: um, Fortune 500 companies, publicly traded companies, um, it's not just the right thing to do; it's increasingly important. It's almost the cost of doing business in those 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 upper echelon uh, industries and 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 groups that you have to build uh, environmental and social uh, governance issues into your business plan and in doing so you're looking at different ways to diversify your crops i mean you know when you look at a company like procter and gamble how can they take a step in that direction well the answer in my opinion is hemp packaging hemp packaging that's easy then hemp plastic packaging which gets a little bit more complex but those are some easy ways because the industrial hemp plant is fraught with opportunity to allow for ESG in the sense that, you know, look at carbon sequestration, by the way, the Biden administration, as I understand it, and I've seen the law, I just don't know how it operates in practice, it is there is policy in place to encourage farmers to produce plants that sequester carbon from the atmosphere we can do that with industrial hemp maybe as well if not better than any other crop on the planet the question becomes how do you measure it then what do you do with it it's one thing to remove it but you also have to sequester it and get it out uh those are some things so you can't just plant the crop and then burn the crop that's you know that's that's sort of a, uh, a zero sum game there. But uh, when you look at things like that, and you look at the ability to use hemp-based packaging, and you look at the ability to to integrate hemp-based plastics, these are things that would improve those ESG scores, and also what's called the SDP scores, the Sustainable Development Policy Goals from the World Economic Forum and the United Nations. They kind of work hand in hand and companies get scored based on that. And increasingly those companies need to find avenues. So if you're a hemp farmer or a processor, look for those large companies, present them with the data, let alone the fact that you can cleanse the soil for the, uh, you know, by, by planting the industrial hemp crop and pulling, you know, heavy metals, pesticides, uh, even other contaminants out of the soil and sequestering those as well. Hemp does that just about as well as any plant on the planet all right. you know that i know that the people in our industry proclaim that far and wide it just doesn't seem to have gotten traction on a mainstream level although we're going to see more and more of that so um, i look at companies that need to take the lead i look at a company like procter and gamble that needs to embrace and develop hemp-based packaging and needs to embrace or develop the promotion of planting industrial hemp at least for the carbon credit uh, issue which will improve their tax bottom line and benefit the environment those are some things where hemp is just uniquely situated and mm-hmm. primed um, and and we just we talk about it a lot but we haven't seen our willing partners on the big business side embrace it when it seems like a
0: a no-brainer right well it's 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 um you know it's even, an awareness issue. Think about just like a regional restaurant chain or something like that. I mean, if they just started using, you know, hemp-based plastics for their go cups, you know, or for their, you know, uh, just for the plastic cutlery that they would use and let those be hemp-based bioplastics like that, all of a sudden they're getting the check, the boxes checked and the smiley faces, right, if nothing else, to know that they're doing something in the space at least where helps them be able to check the boxes and be able to know that they are doing the right thing, even if it's not the right, even if it's just for a market reason, even if it's just to be able to let their customers know that we are doing something as a do different. Um, I think there's all kinds of opportunities for that. And we, we think about that. We don't just think about it at the co-op every day. We're trying to find ways to do that very specifically, to let us be part of your answer of, and let us connect you to these, to not only the growers to produce the, the, the crop, but let us help process that with people who have the processes that know how to do these things. So we can help you back at your regional grocery store or your whatever it is, and not even really thinking about the big, big Fortune 100s or even the Fortune 200s. What about all these other ones that have an opportunity, too? So anyway, you got a commercial there, whether you want it or not. But I mean, that was that's part of that, <laughs> about, about I, love that's, it, about I love how it, Nick. That's rolling. So, Bob, thank you so much for your time today, man. I, I, uh, you give us great uh, confidence to know that we all are in a good space and in a good place of the things that we're doing. Thank you on behalf of all the rest of us that are late to the party for the work that you and others have done on the front end uh, to help us get here. We know we got a long way to go, but um, we would have not gotten this far without folks like you. So I appreciate that very much for what you've done. Uh, Your your words are very kind. There's no place that I'd rather be. uh, So thank you. How about that? Hey, look, next week uh, we are going to have uh, Jeff Whaling is going to be on for the National Hemp Association. Another person who spends a whole lot of time talking hemp to people all day long. So we'll learn a a little bit more about the National Hemp Association uh, next week uh, uh, from Jeff and uh, uh, continue to like us on our podcast, please, at the Industrial Hemp Growers Digest. And uh, you can always learn more about us at the co-op at national Uh, hempcoop.us and learn more about what we're doing. Bob Hovind, Clark Hill Law Firm, downtown Denver. Thank you, man. We appreciate you. Thank you, sir. Have a good one. Appreciate you. Bye-bye. This
1: podcast produced and distributed by MWB Studios.